Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We um, took a break for the holidays last week, but uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The theme of the book of Hebrews is uh, that Jesus is better than. And then um, uh, Paul, I believe it was Paul who is the um, the author of the book because he's uh, uh, identifying certain things that uh, that he's run into, some problems. Uh, the churches that Paul would start, the Jews would either come or send people from Jerusalem to um, uh, try to impose the Mosaic law and uh, circumcision and, and ritual sacrifices and different things like that upon the Christians. And Paul fought against this uh, with every group uh, or in every town that he started a church. And um, uh, we believe that this is a, a letter that he attached to the, uh, the letter that he wrote back to the Galatians. There are a lot of things, uh, some we've made mention of briefly and others we'll see tonight, but uh, if we took time to really go through and compare all the things that Paul said to the Galatians and how he explains it in detail to the, uh, in the, the, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, it, it would um, give us even more of a picture of why uh, it's commonly thought and, and I believe a good thought that these two letters were attached. Paul has, uh, has done some, uh, uh, some work in the previous chapters to identify that Jesus was greater than Aaron, who was the first of the high priests. Aaron is representative of the high priest in chapter 7. He talked about how that Jesus was better than, uh, than Aaron as a high priest because he was without sin. He talks in chapter 8 how that Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant and goes into some detail uh, through Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 31. He, uh, most of the, well, half of the book of, uh, or the eighth chapter, I should say, is Jeremiah's prophecy, and Paul is making a, a statement about why it's a better covenant and why Jesus is a better mediator than Moses was of the Mosaic covenant. Chapter 9, he's going to talk about Jesus being a better sacrifice. Now, uh, we gotta, we've got to go back to the last verse of chapter 8 to tie into what he's about to say. So chapter 8, verse 13, it says, In that he saith a new covenant, this is a, a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, he just said it in verse 8, when the Lord says, I will make a new covenant. Now Paul is referencing that again. In that he saith to Jeremiah, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. There, it's, it's an interesting thing because uh, uh, there's a lot of terminology in the book of Hebrews that's very, very specific. You'll see a couple of examples this evening. But the Holy Ghost is so specific about the things that he says and how he says them. And it's almost like he had a master plan from the beginning to the end, you know? Which, of course, he did. And, um, uh, and as such, he never uses words that contradict. Never. Now, some of the translation doesn't accurately uh, depict what's really being said from the original Hebrew and the Old Testament or the Greek and the New. But it's always very exact language. Now, the fact that he uses the terms Old and New Covenant rather than First and Second Covenant or another covenant or some other terminology is a sign to the Jews. Because if something new is new, it presupposes and it causes everybody to understand that whatever is new takes the place of the old and therefore the old passes away. And that's why it's called an old and a new covenant. It's not a different covenant, folks. It's just something that fulfilled and superseded that which was old. It's the same covenant, but we've got a better high priest. We've got better promises. We've got a better mediator. We've got a better sacrifice. We've got better results. Now, the reason that this is important for the Jews, 
we don't think too much about it because we didn't, we weren't under the old covenant to begin with. But to the Jews, this is a very important thing because the stuff that Paul is going to talk about in chapter nine is everything that their, that their nation is hinged upon. Everything. And for, by virtue of the fact that he's saying that we now have a new covenant means that everything that they've based their lives on, based their worship of God on, based their, 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 their state, the nation itself is, is done away with and is obsolete. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now I want to take this apart and then we'll read through several verses. Notice first thing that he makes mention of now that he's established the fact that there was an old covenant. Now there's a new covenant. He says the ordinances of the old covenant, uh, the ordinances, how does he say it? He says the first covenant had ordinances. That's past tense. He doesn't say they still have them. He says they had them. They're done away with. But notice he says also. So what he's saying is the ordinances that you're used to and the ordinances he's talking about are going to be the work of the high priest, the sacrifices, the, um, uh, the, the, offering, uh, the offerings on behalf of the people and the, the standing in uh, representation for the people under God and things like that. He said all those ordinances are done away with. All of the stuff, the, uh, the Old Testament rituals and the high priest washings and, and gifts and other stuff, all the things that he did. He said all that is being done away with, but there are ordinances of the new covenant. Now, the first covenant had ordinances. Those are done away with, and it had a worldly sanctuary. Don't let the word worldly throw you. He's not talking about something uh, spiritual as opposed to carnal. He's talking about earthly as opposed to heavenly. Look at chapter 9, verse 24 real quickly. Here's what he's talking about. He says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands which are the figures of the true, in other words, which is is an example of what God originally intended, but into heaven itself. Notice it doesn't say he entered into the heavenly holy of holies. I've been bad about this through the years myself because the Bible talks about the Old Testament temple and the Old Testament uh, tabernacle being types of what's in the New Testament. So we sometimes get the idea, and it's kind of easy to say, that there's a heavenly holy of holies. There's really not. Heaven is the holy of holies. The presence of God is the, the inner sanctuary. It is the only place that, that, that God exists and where his presence is. So here it's saying the type was that the high priest would enter into the holy of holies where the presence of God is. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't enter into any holy place made with hands. The only tabernacle it talks about with Jesus, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says Jesus was the minister of the true tabernacle. He's not talking about the earthly tabernacle. He's talking about the body that God crafted for him apart from a man. He's talking about the virgin birth. So he says, Jesus didn't enter into a holy place made with hands. He entered into heaven itself. Well, what high priest is ever going to be able to do that? He's establishing why Jesus is a better sacrifice or had a better sacrifice. I'm going to read verses 2 through 5 and then we'll back up and take them apart. For there was a tabernacle made. The first, wherein was the, uh, the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. We know that as the holy of holies. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now he goes on and he talks about some of these things and and identifies what the purpose is. Let me summarize real quickly. Everything that he makes mention of represents Jesus in some way or another. 
But here's a question for you first thing. Why does he talk about the tabernacle instead of the temple? The Jews aren't working in, worshiping in the tabernacle. They're worshiping in the temple at the time Paul reads it, or writes this. This is about uh, 65 to 67 A.D. When he's writing this, it's three to five years before Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. The temple is destroyed and burned. There's not one stone left upon another as Jesus prophesied. This is three to five years before that takes place. So why does he talk about the tabernacle instead of the temple? Well, folks, the answer is real simple, and that is this. He established in chapter 4 that there remaineth a rest under the people of God. In other words, he's saying just because Jerusalem came into its own land, just because it took the land of Canaan and settled there, Joshua led them, led the children of Israel across the Jordan River and defeated all the enemies, just because they took possession of the land, that wasn't the rest that God intended. That's not the true inheritance. It's just a place to live in the meantime. So if he uses the temple, the temple represents to the Jews, we're home now. He uses the tabernacle, therefore, because you're not home yet. you got a place to live. God provided a home land for you, but you're not home yet. So he says there was a tabernacle made. The first, he's going to talk about uh, how the tabernacle was, was built and developed and so forth. I tried to come up with a, uh, a picture that I could give you so that you could see where these uh, elements of the uh, the tabernacle were and, and things like that, but I couldn't come up with anything that I was satisfied with. So I'll just try to have to try to describe it. The um, uh, the Bible tells us that Moses spent forty days in the on the mountain of God on Mount Sinai, getting instructions for how to build the tabernacle. Now think about what that means, folks. God made the heavens and the earth in six days. It took forty days to tell Moses all the details about how to build the tabernacle. That implies, and the Jews should the Jews understand this, at least in theory, the rabbis understood that God's plan for redemption or reconciliation for mankind was way more important than the creation of the heavens and the earth. It'd do you good to meditate on that a little bit. We think of creation as being the, the miraculous event of, of all time. It's not. God considered the creations of heaven and earth, the Genesis account of creation, God considered that just to be, I've got to do that to set things up for what's really important. What was really important is redemption. And the picture of redemption in the Old Testament was the tabernacle. The temple then was stage two, but it's still all part of the same thing. So in the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, there was an outer court. And then there was a tent that was made. The tent was very specific and uh, the instructions were very specific about the size and the length and the, the width and the height and all that other kind of stuff. But without going into detail and, and making this more tedious than it already is, let's, uh, I want you to imagine there was an outer court and in the outer court there were two elements. There was, uh, the brazen altar. That's where the sacrifices were made. And there was the, the, uh, the laver. That was the washing pit, and it was this great big giant bowl, and, and it had to be made in just a certain way. It was made of gold and different things like that. It was very, very intricately done and planned and so forth. But all that stuff's outside of the tabernacle. That's not even considered part of it. That's the outer court. Anybody could go into the outer court. You didn't have to be Jewish. You could look over into it. Everybody could see. Those two things represented Jesus too. The brazen altar represents Jesus on the cross. The world sees Jesus on the cross, folks. And it doesn't make them one with God. The laver represents the washing of the water with the word. 
It represents the Bible. Those are the two things that the world, the unsaved, see. They see Jesus on the cross. They see the Bible. Does that get any of them saved? No, in fact, that causes many of them to look at it and say, well, I don't know why you guys think this is so important. Because there are some things that you can only understand when you look through the veil. There are some things, and everything that Paul talks about inside the veil, in the holy place and in the inner sanctuary that was divided into two different uh, sections, there was the, the holy place. In the holy place, there was the lampstand. There was the table of showbread with the showbread on top of it. And here's where some people look at this and they think that there's a discrepancy in the Bible. There was the, the, um, the altar of incense, the censer. Well, the Bible indicates, if you read it casually, the Bible indicates that that was in the Holy of Holies. But it wasn't. It was, on, it was right next to the veil that separated the two sections. In the Holy of Holies, there was one and only one thing, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what do these things mean? Well, everything inside the tabernacle represents fellowship and communion with God. And Jesus represents that just as much as he represents to the world the cross or the crucifixion and the Bible, the word of God made flesh. So here where he talks about the lamp stand, that's the only light there is. If this thing is covered with uh, with several layers of goat skins and animal skins and different things that they had to use to make this uh, this tent, the only light that was there was was that which represents Jesus. It came from the lamp stand. And the lamp stand was powered by, or lit, we should say, by the oil. The oil is a type of the Holy Ghost. But that represents Jesus too. Your life, the light of your life is Jesus and Him alone. And unless you keep the, the oil going through fellowship with the Spirit or in the Spirit, you're not going to have anything worthwhile. The table of showbread. The table itself represents communion. The showbread represents Jesus, the bread of life. But what about the censer? Well, here's where, here's where things really get interesting. Let me show you the details of the words that are used. It says in verse 2 again, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein. Wherein means inside of, right? The first means the holy place, the section within called the holy place, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Or that's another translation, another translation says the holy place. Verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Well, we know that's how it was. We know there was a holy place. And then there was an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. But notice verse 4. Talking about the Holy of Holies, it said, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. Well, was the, the golden censer in the Holy of Holies? No, it wasn't. But notice it says, which had. This is going to describe to the Jews why Paul is talking about the tabernacle to begin with. Because here's how it worked. The Jewish calendar is 360 days. For 359 days a year, the priest would go in the holy place and they would change out the, the bread, the showbread. It had to be new every day. They would make sure that the lampstand had plenty of oil. They would make sure that the, the, uh, uh, the golden censer was ready and it was, it was burning and everything was there. They had to keep coals of fire on it every day. They didn't burn incense every day, but they had to keep coals of fire every day. They had to keep everything ready and everything right. One day, however, the day of atonement, the high priest went on the inside. And only the high priest could go. That's what Paul is using as an example for Jesus being a better sacrifice. Now, on the, the Day of Atonement, here's how it worked. The high priest, after very great detailed precautions, 
cleansing, ritual washings and stuff like that. If you didn't do things right, the high priest would fall dead inside in the presence of God. So everybody was very, very careful that they did this right. So much so that the, the, uh, the other priest would tie a rope around his foot so that when he went into the Holy of Holies, if they heard a thud, they started pulling him out on the rope. Then somebody had to go in as the number two guy and finish whatever he didn't get done. That, that's got to be the worst job there is, is the second one after the first guy falls down. But anyway. But in order to go in, he's got to strip himself of all his beautiful garments. If you look, read the story of the Old Testament, he had this, this breastplate that had these beautiful stones that represented the nation of Israel. He had this giant hat that, uh, that was made of gold and linen and, and all this kind of stuff. Had beautiful flowing garments and stuff like that. He couldn't wear any of those things inside the Holy of Holies. He had to strip himself of everything except his linen breeches, his, his long underwear, basically. And so he is clean in long underwear. And he goes in with the censer in his hand. He's got the, the outside the, the, um, the veil, there's this big censer that's got the coals. But he takes this little one with coals of fire in it and a handful of incense. And his first move when he cuts through that veil... When he goes from the holy place to the holy of holies, his first move has to be put the, the incense on top of the coals so that it creates this cloud that covers everything. Because if it doesn't cover everything, if he's not fast enough in doing that, he's going to fall dead in the presence of God. Because no man can stand unless he fulfills the rituals of the ordinances that were required. So this is, this is pretty specific stuff. That's why the Bible talks about the censer, the golden censer, being connected to the Holy of Holies and not to the holy place. Because he's talking about when, the, gold, when the, uh, the high priest goes in on the Day of Atonement. He says he's got to have that golden censer or the results of the golden censer and the incense on the inside where the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies or else too bad for him. So he says, which had the golden censer. That's the connection with the golden censer and the Holy of Holies. He says, which had, speaking of the Holy of Holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Everything here represents Jesus. We talked about the, the things that represented Jesus on the outside of the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, not only the golden censer represents Jesus, but also the incense represents Jesus, which is the covering for the high priest. The uh, Ark of the Covenant represents Jesus. The things in the Ark of the Covenant, the manna represents Jesus. Aaron's rod represents the resurrection. Everything about this represents Jesus. It's a type of Jesus. Every piece that Paul identifies, everything that Paul makes mention of is a type of Jesus. And they know that he's talking about Jesus fulfilling all of these things. Verse 5, it says, and over it, over the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. That's a real bad translation. Uh, the literal Greek says this, of which it is not now time to speak in detail. He's not saying we can't. He's saying, I don't want to go down that trail. I don't want to open that, that avenue of discussion. They know what he's talking about anyway. He's just not wanting to get off the, off the subject. Now, here's the, here's the deal, folks. Everything about the temple, or I'm sorry, everything about the tabernacle, though it points to Jesus, the whole purpose of the tabernacle was one and only one thing, and that was to house the Ark of the Covenant. When David, 
or when David had the temple built and Solomon dedicated the temple, there's only one thing that moves from the tabernacle into the temple, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. They had a new brazen altar. They had a new uh, labor. They had a new table of showbread. They had new bread every day. They had a new candlestick. They had uh, a new golden censer. They had new everything except the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only thing that moved with it. So everything about the tabernacle, though it represents Jesus, was to house the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant was, was the thing for Israel. It's what set Israel apart from everything else. Every other nation on the face of the earth. Because that Ark of the Covenant represent, and the mercy seat represented the one place where blood, animal sacrifices, would make Israel, would bring Israel back into the favor of God no matter what they had done the previous year. Now, let me ask you something. What was the difference in the sins of Israel and the sins of other nations? None. Israel did the same evil things that the rest of everybody else did. It's not. The ordinances that God established, and and Paul makes very specific, he is very specific about this. Everything that he talks about, he doesn't throw it off as inferior from the standpoint that it it wasn't of God to begin with. Instead, he emphasizes all of these things were of God. These are divine ordinances. The priests had a divine purpose. He had divine instructions. These were things that God and only God could command to be done. And God's command to do them is, is the proof of the fact that it's the only way you could worship God. So what was it that made Israel, the nation of Israel, different from anybody else? Here it is. Here's the one thing. The blood offered on the mercy seat brought Israel back into a place of favor instead of being judged by the wrath of God for the things that they did wrong. That's it. It didn't make them better. They thought it did, but it didn't make them better than anybody else. It just postponed or removed the wrath of God, depending on different time periods. It removed them from the wrath of God for the things that they did. That's the only difference between Israel and any other nation on the earth. And that's the the point that Paul is making. Jesus fulfilled all of these things. All of these things were types and shadows of him. Verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained. He's talking about God's the one that ordained them. Nothing wrong with what happened before. Paul's only point is those things have been done away with because now there's something better. Folks, let me, uh, let me make this statement before we go any further. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 8, 6. A lot of people are familiar with... Uh, the better covenant. He's the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. I don't think a lot of Christians realize what that really means. Here, here it is. God never asks you to put something away unless he gives you something better. So anytime, this is true where Judaism was concerned, he asked him to put away the law of Moses because there was a better covenant. He asked him to put away the ritual sacrifices because Jesus was a better sacrifice. We could go down the list. We could talk about all the things about Jesus that was better. But the point is this. If God ever challenges you to put something away, if there's sin that you're, that you're being challenged with, if there's something that, that's going on in your life that you can't seem to overcome, but you know that you know that you know God is dealing with you about stopping that or putting that away or whatever, it's not because he's trying to take something away from you. He's trying to give you something better. And only, in Israel's case, the only thing that's going to keep them from putting away that which is inferior is either prejudice or unbelief. Now, if they're prejudiced, 
if this is the way that it's always been. And please understand, folks, the work of the high priest is everything to the Jews. It's what they've been taught from the time that they were born. Everything about being reconciled to God, about the nation, the state of Israel, everything about everything where Israel and Jews and Judaism is concerned is based on one and only one thing, and that is the work of the high priest. There's lots of sacrifices, there's lots of offerings, there's lots of things that you're supposed to do, but one thing trumps all of it, and that is the work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And that's the very thing that Paul begins to talk about, because he knows the importance. So when Paul talks about the ordinances, when Paul talks about the works of the high priest and, and then shows that Jesus has a better work and a better ministry and more excellent ministry and so forth, he knows what he's telling them. He's telling them that if the old covenant has passed away, the place where the old covenant was instituted and carried out must pass away too. That's their identification as a nation. The more I study the book of Hebrews, the more I understand why the Jews, particularly those Jews in Jerusalem, that looked at the temple day after day after day, I understand why it was more difficult for them to put away than it would be for us. We look at it and we think, well, what's the big deal? Who wants to make animal sacrifices anyway? Folks, i got to tell you, if I had to wait for you to bring a goat and kill it up in front of the church, I don't know I'd be doing this. You know? We might try it once, but... I don't think I'd, I'd be happy with that kind of life. But, the, but for the Jews, that's everything. They've lived that. And to them, it's like everything that we've lived is a lie. No, it's not. Their understanding needs to be brought to the place where Paul's was. That's one of the reasons why Paul kicked against the, the, uh, Christianity so hard. That's why he persecuted the church. They're destroying his way of life. He's trained to be a priest. He's, if he was, except that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul would have been the high priest. And now these upstart fishermen, Peter, who the only thing he was known by the council, uh, by the council for was being an ignorant and unlearned man. These are guys that have trained all their lives. These are guys that have studied. These are guys that have dedicated themselves to know the Bible, know the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And now Peter comes along doing miracles? You've got to be kidding me. You can understand where they're coming from. You can understand their hesitation to put away their whole way of life because Peter, who's he, says Jesus is alive and that's how I'm doing miracles. Well, okay. You could even be glad for the miracles and still not be convinced about the rest of it. Do you understand what I mean? That's what Paul's attacking. Nobody's in a better position than him to do it because of the training that he has. Verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, that's the holy place, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. Alone, once every year, and not without blood. He couldn't go into, into that veil without carrying blood with him. He won't last seconds. If he doesn't have blood with him. Into the second, the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, for he offered it for him, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. 
In other words, he's saying the fact that the high priest could only go in with blood, it shows us, it proves that the way hadn't been made clear yet. Because if the way's been made clear, if the sacrifice has been made, now please understand, the Jews are looking for two things. They're looking for a Messiah, and they're looking for a prophet king. You remember they kept asking Jesus, are you going to restore the nation of Israel? Are you going to establish your kingdom now? You're going to give the kingdom back to Jerusalem, to, uh, to Israel and to get us out of the bondage of the Romans and the rule of the Romans. Why was that such a big deal? Because for Jesus to do the miracles and people to start saying he's the son of David, meaning he's the Messiah, to most of the Jews, that meant, okay, well, a prophet talks for God. We see that. We can accept that. What about king? They knew that the, the Messiah had to be prophet and king. What threw them off is they didn't understand the prophet, the prophet, king, and priest roles of the Messiah. Nobody understood Jesus was supposed to be a priest. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. That's why Paul spends so much time in chapter 7 talking about Jesus being a more excellent high priest than Aaron. Nobody got that. Nobody would understand that. He was operating as a priest. Now, what does a priest do? A priest operates not for himself but on the behalf of other people. That's what this is saying. The Holy Ghost is signifying by virtue of the fact that the high priest had to go through the veil with blood into the holy place. If he didn't have blood, he was dead meat. Drop dead instantly. That proves that the way wasn't made clear. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. Not now. It's now past. But then it was present. See, Paul makes the distinction between the temple worship, the tabernacle sacrifice, and Jesus' resurrection. He said, then it was present tense, now it's past tense, which was a figure or an illustration or a type and a shadow for the time then present, now past, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. He's saying this. He's saying, you know the precautions the high priest had to take. The Day of Atonement. What a big deal that is. How everything about Israel is based on that and, and, and centers around that. But the blood that the high priest carried in, did it purge him or make him perfect in any way regarding that which is inside? The answer was no. Because if the answer had been yes, he had never had to make the sacrifice again for himself. Can you see where he's going? He's saying everything in the, in the tabernacle that represented the real which is to come, Jesus... Everything about the high priest that represented the real that is to come, Jesus. Even the blood itself, which represents Jesus. None of it was available. None of it was working. None of it made a difference in any other way except the outward man until Jesus. So the priest offered gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. As pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats. Now here he's talking about the service of the, of the old covenant. Which stood only, notice the word only, in meats and drinks. He's talking about external things. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings, ritual washings, and carnal ordinances, prescribed rites or ceremonies in other words. Notice the next word, imposed upon them until the time of reformation. Imposed upon them. What's he saying? He's saying that was a burden. 
Folks, one thing about the Day of Atonement, we, uh, well, I don't know if everybody has the same idea that I did, but when I used to read in the Bible about the Day of Atonement, I'd think, well, okay, it's just one day a year. That one day a year made such an impact on every, every uh, Israeli, every Jewish person that they carried throughout their lives because that one day of year... One day a year, everybody had to go to Jerusalem. That means the youngest children are seeing a bloodbath all day long. They're seeing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice being made. Because nobody could, everybody was supposed to go to Jerusalem. You couldn't go without a sacrifice. If it's too far for you to travel, you bought, you took money with you and bought one when you got to town. But everybody is watching. You had to do it as a family. You couldn't just send, you know, little brother out and here, take this to the priest. Everybody had to be involved. The whole family had to be involved. The family had, or all the men at least, women could only go to the outer court. But the whole family had to go and watch this thing sacrificed, watch this animal, whether it came from home or whether they bought it in town. They had to watch this animal sacrifice because that blood being spilled covered them. If they didn't do that, then no matter what the high priest did as the overall sacrifice for the nation, it wouldn't cover them. They had a personal stake in this. They had a personal part in this. It was an absolute bloodbath. Folks, there are hundreds of priests that are taking part in this. But you're standing, your family is standing in line for hours to wait to get to the priest to cut the neck of this goat. Well, what are the kids doing all that time? They're watching goats die by the thousands. They probably had a fainting tent set up off to the side somewhere. Because with all that blood, you know some people are losing their cookies. See, we think of this as some pristine thing. Yeah, Jesus went to the cross and he offered his blood. Folks, the Day of Atonement, what Jesus did, what Jesus took the place of, was an absolute bloodbath. And you didn't just see it, you smelled it all day long. How does a kid get away from that? We think of traumatic things with tragedies that happen now. We think, well, how are these little kids going to survive that? They didn't, the stuff the kids see nowadays is nothing compared to what the Jews lived year after year after year. To such a degree that probably some of them got hardened to it. First time or two, it might have made a real impact. After that, it's kind of like, well, you know, who knows why we have to do all this. But maybe it didn't have the same impact on them that it should. Maybe the, the frequency or the familiarity with it caused them to, to, to lose sight of what was really do, going on. But folks, this is the experience. It was an absolute bloodbath. That's why Paul talks about these things, these ordinances being imposed upon the people. It's not what anybody would choose to do. It's a burden. You know, one of the, there's an interesting verse of scripture in, uh, in Acts chapter 15. I think it's verses 28 and 29. Acts 15 is the council at Jerusalem. Paul has enough. Everywhere he's going, the Jews are sending people or Jews are coming from Jerusalem and trying to make people keep the, uh, the law of Moses and be circumcised and stuff like that. And finally, he takes um, um, some people with him and, uh, and goes back to Jerusalem and, and has it out with everybody. He said he was led by the Holy Ghost, but you know, Paul, his personality is such, I don't think he came to town with a friendly face. 
He came in saying, what are you guys doing? This has got to stop. And so what he did, Peter was there. Peter uh, told the council and James and the elders of the church. He told them about what God had done with him. Paul then told what God had done with, with his ministry and how things were going on. Finally, in Acts chapter 15, I think it's verse 28, 29, somewhere around there. It says, James answered and says, it's not right that we should impose any burden upon the churches other than that they don't eat blood. Avoid fornication and things that are strangled, I think. I think those were the three things that they made mention of. Maybe give to the poor, I'm not sure. But there were just a few things, stuff that you would think, well, yeah, of course, that's what people are doing anyway. The point is, under Christianity, they didn't want to impose a burden because the burden are the things that they came out of. So why should we impose burdens upon the Gentiles? That was James' Uh, sentence. That was James' answer about this. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what Paul talked about to the Galatians. He said, why are people that don't keep the law trying to make you keep the law? Why are they trying to impose some burden upon you? That's another reason why we think the book of Hebrews was attached to the book of Galatians. Because just to the Galatians, he says, why should you put up with somebody adding a burden? To the Jews, he says, don't you know the burden that you're living under under the old covenant? Why in the world would you want to put that on somebody else? That's his point. So he says uh, the carnal ordinances, the washings, the meats and drinks, all the outward signs were imposed upon them until the time of reformation. The word reformation means to straighten or to make right. He said these things were imposed upon the Jews, upon the nation of Israel, until a certain time. Well, what time was that? Till God made things right. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. Verse 9 says the high priest who was offering gifts and sacrifices for people offered a sacrifice for himself and he couldn't even make him perfect. Now skip down with me to verse 11, but Christ. Here's the contrast, but Christ. But is the contrast, Christ is the important word. Because he doesn't say Jesus, he says Christ. Why does he use the term Christ? Because all of the Jews were looking for the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. It means, Christ, it means uh, Messiah. It means anointed one. So he's saying only the Messiah, only the anointed one could do something the high priest here couldn't do. He's the only one that could straighten things out. He's the only one that could make things right. High priest couldn't do it. And folks, the high priest is probably reading the letter that he's writing. Paul is pretty kind by the Holy Ghost direction, I think, not to say, and to the high priest, I say this. Who do you think you are? Why don't you try stepping into the veil like Jesus did? That's his point. He's saying the high priest couldn't do it. Only the Messiah could. Only the anointed one could. Folks, that's why it was so important for Jesus to be anointed by the Holy Ghost by John in the Jordan River. He became the anointed one. He was the sent one. He was the, the Christ from the time that he was born of the Virgin Mary. But he only became the anointed one when the Holy Ghost came on him in John chapter 3. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things. Anybody know he was a high priest when he came? No. His disciples didn't. What does a high priest do? A high priest offers gifts and sacrifices on behalf of somebody else, not for himself. His job as a high priest is to offer sacrifices on behalf of somebody else for one and only one purpose, and that is to turn away the wrath of God and bring the people that he represents back into his favor. 
but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come. He's establishing again. It's a better covenant established upon better promises. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. What's he talking about? He's talking about his body. Again, chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2, he talks about Jesus being a minister of the true tabernacle. His body was not made with hands. His body was not made in an earthly form. His body was made by the Holy Ghost joining together with a virgin. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained an eternal redemption for us. Now, here's another thing that, that we kind of casually say, and I've been guilty of this, but... but I'm not going to do this anymore. We sometimes say Jesus entered into the holy place, the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood. Well, let me ask you a question. If Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood, where did he get it from? When his blood spilled at the cross? When his blood spilled in Pilate's court when he was beaten and took stripes upon his back? What did he do? Did he go back to those places with a spoon? Try to scoop it up off the ground? His blood was shed, folks. How could he enter into the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood? Now, as I said, I've been guilty of this. It's easy to say things casually. But specifically, it couldn't happen. His blood was shed. Jesus appeared to his disciples, and he said, uh, after he was raised from the dead, he said, handle me, a spirit hath not flesh and bone as I do. He didn't say flesh and blood. He says flesh and bone. Well, why didn't he say flesh and blood? Because his blood was spilled. His blood was shed. All of his blood was poured out. The final thing that the Romans did was thrust that spear into his side and blood and water came out. His body drained of blood. So how was his blood the issue in heaven? Folks, the fact that his blood was shed was the very reason that he was able to enter into the presence of God. Spotless blood was emptied out. So Jesus entering in as the eternal redemption, the fact that he is bloodless proves that he's the sacrifice. That's what he did. He entered into the presence of God in heaven itself. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. In other words, by the shedding of his own blood, not with his own blood. That's the point that Paul's making. He says in the Holy of Holies, the, the high priest has to carry blood with him. Jesus didn't carry blood with him. He shed blood. By his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You know why Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? The Bible says it's to make intercession for us. It's literally, what that means literally is his presence proves that we're united with God. Why? Because the earthly type in the tabernacle and in the temple was that blood was placed on the mercy seat. Jesus is sitting in the mercy seat. The fact that he is forever joined together with his Father, seated at his right hand, is eternal proof that we have access to the Father. It's eternal proof that the wrath of God will never be poured out upon us and that we're always in his favor. Jesus is the proof. That's why he's a mediator of a better covenant. Better covenant established upon better promises means you can't make it any other way. You can't change it. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, what if we mess up? Then that means you messed up, but you're still righteous. You messed up, but you're still in the favor of God. Well, what do we do about that? First John 1, 9. If you mess up, confess your sins and come running back. Because God doesn't change. 
God doesn't take his favor off of you. He doesn't say, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave you alone until you, until you confess your sins. I'm going to just let you go. That's not how it works. Now, how it also works is you put yourself in a position for the devil to get to you. But God doesn't change his attitude towards you. Not one little bit. And Jesus is the eternal proof of that. Folks, here's what it comes down to. God will never get mad at you until Jesus leaves his presence. Think about that. God can never get mad at you. He can never separate you from his favor as long as Jesus is in his presence. Gee, I sure hope Jesus never leaves. That's the whole point. He's there for eternity. That's why it's a better covenant established upon better promises. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Okay, we understand the bulls and goats' blood. That was the day of atonement. That was what brought us out of uh, a condemned position back in, or brought them out of a condemned position back into the favor of God as a nation. What about the ashes of the heifer? Well, here's how it works. According to the law of Moses, any Jew that came in contact with anything unclean, now that could be someone with an issue of blood, that could be um, uh, coming in contact with a dead body, it could be any number of things according to the ritual law. If that happened, there's only one way that you could satisfy the cleansing or purification process prior to the Day of Atonement. Now, if, it, if for example, if you touched a dead body the day before the Day of Atonement, then that would take care of it. But let's say the Day of Atonement was last week and you fell over into a dead body. What are you going to do? Well, uh, Numbers chapter 19, I think it is, provides for a cleansing process. And that cleansing process is very simply this. Part of the work of the high priest was to burn heifers from time to time so that you kept plenty of ashes on hand. Now, that ash would be mixed with pure water, clean water, and then that clean water and ash mixture would be sprinkled on the person that was unclean, and that ritual that ritual act would bring about the purification of the flesh. Now, you tell me, what does that have to do with cleaning somebody up? Nothing. Ashes don't make you clean. If ashes made you clean, we'd have ash desurgent. That's not how it works. It's a ritual sacrifice, something that you had to do to bring yourself back into a place where you knew you weren't condemned for having touched some, uh, coming in contact with something unclean. So that's what he's talking about. The point that he's making is, just like the bull, blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of ashes of the heifer would purify somebody, the only purification that could take place is external. Nothing could be done about the man on the inside. Nothing could be done about the conscience. You knew as well as I did, as well as every other person did, even if you made the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, even after you had the purification by the heifer's ashes, even if you did all the things right, you still know you messed up. You still knew you were unclean. You couldn't get away from the knowledge that you weren't right before God. He just gave you a pass. A lot of Christians live that way now, and it, it defeats them. They never come to the realization that they've been made righteous. That, uh, honestly, that's one of the problems I've got with some of the grace teaching nowadays. Because the grace teaching focuses on love. And it's like, oh, God loves me. Oh, God loves me. Oh, God loves me. Folks, that's great. God loves you. Now, get past that and realize you've been made righteous. 
It's not focusing on God's love that causes you to realize you've been made righteous. What makes you realize that you've been made righteous is meditating on the fact that you've been made righteous. Okay. Verse 13 again. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, but nothing could be done about the conscience under the old covenant, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the whole point he's making. He's saying here's why Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus is a better sacrifice because he takes care of the man on the inside, not just purifying your flesh. That's why you don't have to do it year after year after year anymore. That's why you don't have to do the ritual sacrifice. That's why there's no heifer that needs to be burned so that you can be clean. Jesus did it once and for all, and he has purged or purified your conscience from dead works. Now, what are dead works? Well, the dead works he talked about in chapter 6 were the things that we did before we got saved. Works that bring about death, except but for Jesus. The same dead works might be things that we're still caught up in as Christians, things that we haven't yet overcome our flesh in. Those are still dead works, but you could even participate. How do I say this? You could even violate what your heart wants to do and sin and still be purged from dead works by the blood of Jesus. You know, there, there's, there's, some, there's some real fine lines about some of this stuff, and, and people, bless their hearts, so many people take things wrong. Because they, they think if you talk about what Jesus has done, that it's a license to sin. And the Bible doesn't give you a license to sin. In fact, the Bible tells you that you've been forgiven from sin, so therefore you ought to live right. But folks, just knowing that you've been forgiven from sin doesn't make you live right. What's going to cause that? The only thing that can bring that about is coming to an understanding of the authority that you have over the power of sin in your life. See, if we could ever come to the realization, if the church could ever realize that being made righteous means that the power of sin is broken over our lives. So it's not a matter of what we're forced to do. It's not a matter of what we can't help. It's a matter of what we choose to do and what we exercise our will to do. Then the church would live righteously. And you wouldn't have to keep patting people on the back saying, it's okay, you're all right. We could enter into a new level and help other people. That's what Paul's saying. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot or fault to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We'll start with verse, or introduce verse 15, but we'll stop here and, and pick up there next time. Notice he says in verse 15, and for this cause. In other words, he's saying this is the whole crux of the matter. This is why the law of Moses is something that needs to be ignored from this point forward because it's been fulfilled. And for this cause, because of this, Paul understands that this is the, this is the linchpin of everything. This understanding this will cause those that have been, uh, operating according to the old covenant to turn loose and take hold of the better covenant established upon better promises. He said, this is the whole reason. 
Now, what's he, what's he identifying? He's telling us that Jesus is a better high priest than the high priest uh, that followed after Aaron. He's telling us that Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, meaning the old one's passed away. Now he's telling us Jesus is a better sacrifice and for this cause, for the cause of the sacrifice. He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He's talking about redemption. He's saying, folks, all of redemption is tied up in this. If you keep going back to the old sacrifices, if you keep trying to please God in some other way except Jesus, if you keep trying to work yourself towards some place that you feel okay with God, he says you're turning your back on the eternal inheritance of redemption because it's all about what Jesus did and not what we do. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, because of what Jesus did, shouldn't we want to do right? Absolutely. But not so you can get right with God. So that you can do the works of Jesus and conquer the devil in your own life. That may not sound like much of a difference, but it's huge. I want to live right. I want to never sin again. You know why I want to never sin again? Not because God will be happy with me. God's as happy with me now as he would be if I, if I was able to live that way. But so that I can accomplish the works that Jesus did here on the earth, be a doer of those works as well, and defeat God's enemy in my own life. That's why I want to live right. It has nothing to do with God being happier with me. I'm just as much a child of God if I never make it as if I do make it. I just want to exercise the victory that Jesus has already made available to us. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying this is the whole cause for him being a mediator of a better covenant. The New Testament. Better covenant established upon better promises. Folks, if we had any idea the depth of the sacrifice and what it really means, we'd take a different look. We'd quit trying to talk ourselves into God loving us. Did you hear what I said? We'd quit trying to talk ourselves into believing God loves us. And we'd step up and stand in the place that Jesus died for us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Jesus is a better sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice that once and for all brought it to us eternal redemption. That which all the Old Testament pointed to. That which was more important than even the creation, the Genesis creation of the universe. That which you planned and ordained from before the founding of the world. Father, help us to see. Help us to realize that we have once and for all been purged from sin and that our consciences have been purged from sin as well. Help us to realize, Father, that we do have authority over sin. We don't have to. Every sin that we enter into is by choice. Help us to grow and mature so that we never choose again to yield ourselves servants of the enemy. Thank you, Father, for the power that we have in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.